I wonder this morning, what are you praying for? What are the prayers of your heart? What are the things that are on your mind? What are the things that you desire and are asking God to answer? I wonder this morning if you have unanswered prayer on your heart. If you have that prayer perhaps that you've been praying for days, weeks, months, years, maybe even decades. How do you respond when you pray and God doesn't seem to answer? Or perhaps He answers in a way that you didn't expect or to be honest, didn't want. Perhaps rather than answering your prayers yes, He's been answering your prayer no. How do you respond to such unanswered prayer or to prayers that are answered no or not yet? Do you trust God? Do you entrust those things to Him? Do you believe that He has good reasons for saying no or wait? Do you get impatient with Him? Do you get stronger in your arguments? Do you lay out for Him all of the arguments and the good reasons for why He should be answering this yes and not no? Why He should be answering now and not later? I wonder how you respond to God's timing whether individual timing in your own life, the timing of God's acts in your life as He moves sovereignly over all things. I wonder how you respond when His timing isn't what you had hoped for. I wonder how you respond to God's timing even as you read Scripture or consider all of history. I wonder if you've ever done the calculation between how long it's been from when Christ came and promised that He would come again and to our day. I wonder if you've considered that it's been almost 2,000 years since He returned. Gone back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and promised that He would come again and wondered of God's timing and His delay. Why is He waiting so long? Perhaps you are praying this morning, even so come, Lord Jesus, and wondering at God's timing and His delay. Are you tempted like me to doubt, to wonder, to question God? Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, God begins to act in history in fulfillment of His promises and in answer to prayer. But his timing is not what people expected. But he does answer prayer. And he has good reasons for what he does. I hope this morning that as we look at Luke chapter 1, that we would be encouraged in our own hearts as we consider consider God's goodness, as we consider God's timing, and as we consider God's kindness in answering prayers. Turn with me to the New Testament book of Luke and chapter 1. Luke is one of the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospel accounts. And in these Gospel accounts, we have accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ with a particular focus on His suffering, His death, and His resurrection from the dead as an atonement for sinners like you and like me. It's my prayer this morning that as we look at Luke chapter 1, the beginning of Luke's gospel, that we would be encouraged to trust God. And our main point this morning from the text is this. Our main point this morning is this. God keeps His promises and God answers prayer. God keeps His promises and God answers prayer. We'll be looking at our passage uh, through three points this morning. Three points, if you're taking notes. Point number one will be two visitations. Point number one, two visits or visitations. 
Point number two, two responses. Point number two, two responses. And point number three, two songs. Point number three, two songs or songs of praise. And because our passage is so long, 80 verses, and because these visitations and responses and songs are mixed within this passage, we're going to be skipping around a bit more than we normally might in a sermon. So you're going to have to have the passage in front of you, and I'm going to be pointing at different verses as we go. But as we begin, I'm going to read all of Luke chapter 1, 80 verses. And then we'll, we'll spend some time considering these three points. Remember the main point as we go through this. God keeps his promises and God answers prayer. We're going to read Luke chapter 1. Read along with me as I read out loud. This is God's word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, "'Do not be afraid, Zechariah.' For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and, he will, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God." And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. and The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's word. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I wonder if you've wondered, what is a gospel? 
There's four of them in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And why four of them? Well, a gospel, in a sense, is a biography. I'm sure you've read biography before. It's a a kind of literature that gives an account of the life of a great person. But it isn't the kind of biography that you may have been required to write in school when you were assigned that paper to write the life of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. How do those biographies tend to start? George Washington was born on a certain date. These were his parents. This is what his early life was like. This is what the middle part of his life was like. The Gospels are biography in in the sense that they are an account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke tells us that in verses 1 to 4. Look at what he says he is doing in writing his Gospel. He says that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So this is an orderly account, in a sense, a biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. But it isn't an ordinary biography because of the things that are emphasized in these Gospels. If you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, how much time is given to the first 30 years of Jesus' life? Well, considering how much is talked about of the last three and a half years of his life, hardly any at all. Other than a chapter in Matthew, at the beginning of Matthew, maybe a chapter and a half, and these first two chapters in Luke, Mark starts right off with his ministry. John begins with a short prologue, but then enters right into his ministry. In other words, these biographies have a primary focus in the ministry of Jesus, his life and ministry, with an even greater emphasis on what he did in his death and in his resurrection. So if you think of the actual percentage of how much time is spent even on his ministry, in almost all of the Gospels, The greatest focus is given on his last week of life, his death and his resurrection. In other words, while these are biographies in the sense of an account of the life and ministry of Jesus, they have particular focus on what he came to do in his death and in his resurrection as an atonement for sinners. Because these Gospels are an account of the incarnation God become man in the person of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. But Jesus, though he was born as a baby, was a baby born to die. That is, he came to earth with the purpose of saving sinners like you and like me. And the the purpose of these gospel writers is as you see there in verse 4 is that we might have certainty concerning these things. I wonder if you've ever had doubts when it comes to the Christian religion. I wonder if you've ever had doubts when it comes to Jesus, who he is, whether he he is who the Bible says he was or not. There's a lot of literature being printed trying to find the quote-unquote historical Jesus. If you spend any time surfing those history channels or scanning the shelves in a Barnes & Noble, you'll find lots of books that seek to tell you the, the real story of who Jesus really was, seeking to sow seeds of doubt that these Gospels are trustworthy. But do you see what Luke is doing as he writes his orderly account? He wants his readers to have certainty to be sure that these things are true. Do you notice how he describes the account that he's writing? He he isn't claiming to be an eyewitness. But he is claiming to have met eyewitnesses and to have interviewed eyewitnesses and to have taken accounts from eyewitnesses, that is, those who were actually there. So you see that these Gospels aren't just 
a compilation of myths that have been passed down orally from generation to generation and then were eventually crafted in order to create the myth of Jesus. No, these are truthful accounts taken from actual eyewitnesses of the people who were actually there and saw these events, who heard Jesus, who saw him die, who met him after he was raised from the dead and can give an account of these things that happened in history. For in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself invaded history and he did it in order to save sinners like you and like me. As we think through our passage this morning, these three points, let's begin with point number one. Luke begins his account with two visitations. Two visitations. One angel, two visits. A visit to Zechariah in the temple and a visit to Mary in Nazareth. And we'll be looking at, uh, at each of these visitations, one after the other, and comparing the two. Because I think as you'll see, Luke is mixing these stories together so that we would think about both of them and compare the two. Sometimes we can get so focused looking at a verse or a couple of verses that we miss the broader picture. I think what you'll see by the end of of this uh, passage this morning is that Luke is weaving together a narrative, and in, in the things he chooses to lay down, he's actually setting things side by side so that we would consider both. He begins with the visitation of Gabriel to Zechariah, the prophecy of a prophet. And then he has the visitation to Mary and the prophecy of a king. And we are to consider both of these visitations side by side. Look there, starting in verse 5. At first, the visitation to Zechariah. Look at how this is talked about. He gives a specific time period. A king. So you see that he's saying that this is a historical event, not a mythological one. There was, in the days of King Herod, a priest whose name was Zechariah. He even lays out his division, the name of his wife, where they were descended from. These are Levites, daughters of Aaron, descendants of Aaron. And her name as well, Elizabeth. He gives a little bit of their history. He says that they were righteous before God. That is, that they were walking in the the statutes of God. They were living lives in order to be pleasing to God. But look at verse 7. One little note before we get to the visitation. They were both advanced in years, and Elizabeth was barren. I wonder, as someone who perhaps knows those Sunday school stories from the Old Testament, do you remember an account of an elderly couple who were advanced in years with a wife that was barren. I wonder if this would make a connection for you in your mind. I think Luke is making that connection for us. There was a time in Israel's history, Abraham, when God called Abraham and Sarai and gave them promises. And he promised that they would have a child. And a child was born to them by a miracle. Isaac, in their old age, and the barren woman gave birth once she was past the time of childbearing. A miracle birth. The birth of Isaac, the forefather of of the Jews. Well, here we have this narrative in verse 7, drawing connections for us. An elderly couple who are righteous but barren. And then we have the visitation. Look at the context in verse 8. He's a priest. He's on duty. He's chosen by Lot to enter the temple, and it looks like to offer one of the two daily sacrifices and then to burn incense on the altar. These sacrifices were given twice a day. They were to bring a um, a sacrifice of a bull or a ram, to bring it in and lay it on the altar and burn it on the altar, and then to burn incense. The, The sacrifice was a sacrifice for sins, a life in the place of life, death, so that we might live. And then the the incense was to be a picture of the prayers of God's people, constantly going up to God as we make requests to Him. And then you see also in verse 10, 
that not only was incense being burnt as Zechariah goes in, but all of the multitude of the people were outside in the temple as he goes into the holy place, and they were praying too. And as as God's people are praying to God, God is about to answer their prayers. You notice that he's going to be answering the prayers of the people as they've been waiting on a Messiah, but also the prayers of this couple as they've been waiting on a child. And God is answering their prayers. Look at verse 11. The prayer begins to be answered through the visitation of an angel of the Lord who appears in the holy place, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Do you notice Zechariah's initial response? It's the same response of anyone who finds themselves in the presence of an angel or in the presence of God. He's afraid. He's troubled. But look at the message of this first visitation. The angel tells him not to be afraid. And he tells him that his prayer has been heard. Now you, you wonder, as you put yourself in the place of Zechariah, perhaps you can relate to Zechariah. Imagine, as we talked at the beginning, of prayers that you have that haven't been answered with a yes, or perhaps have been answered with a wait. It says that his prayers have been heard. These prayers are probably decades old. But do you see that God is at work and had a plan in place, even with his silence, even with his patience over decades, that God had a plan and had good in store, even in asking Elizabeth and Zechariah to wait. It wasn't time yet. And God had a plan for a miracle, a miracle of the elderly giving birth to a baby as part of his plan, not just to answer the prayer of a baby, but to answer the prayers of the world, of a Savior that would come. He then gives him this prophecy. Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. The promise of a child that would be born, and even a name. The, 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 the fact of, of naming a child is a way of showing your authority over them. Parents have the the joy of being able to name children. It's a way of showing that you are the authority figure in their life. Here, Elizabeth and Zechariah are not able to choose the name of their child. God chooses the name of the child. And the name, John, means the Lord is gracious. This child is going to be a prophet. He says that joy and gladness is going to come through the birth of this child, birth to this old couple promise of many rejoicing at his birth, and then a description of what he's going to be like. He's going to be great before the Lord, but he's going to be unique. The reference here to avoiding strong drink or wine and being filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb should remind us of another miraculous birth given to a barren woman. Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 as she was begging the Lord for a child, and finally is given one, and then she entrusts that baby Samuel to the Lord, and he is to be a Levite, avoiding strong drink, and even not cutting his hair. John is to be a unique child, a prophet, and then the promise in 16 and 17, that he would be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. I wonder, as you consider this first visitation, of how you would hear such news. We'll be talking about Zechariah's response shortly. But I wonder how you would consider this news. It may not be what Zechariah or Elizabeth expected. And it may not have been what they even wanted. I think they wanted a different kind of life. A life where they could have children in their young age. A life that fit their preconceived notions of how it should be. But do you see that God is at work doing things that are not expected, but that he has good in store for it? Look at the second visitation in verse 26 and following. The second visitation, the same angel comes a second time, but now to Nazareth. And rather, to, rather than coming to an old man and woman, he comes to a young woman, a virgin. That is, a woman who is young and has not yet been married or had relations, sexual relations with a man. 
but one who is engaged to a descendant of David, uh, who is engaged to a descendant of David. You see that in verse 27. She's betrothed to be married to Joseph, who is of the house of David, and her name was Mary. Here the angel comes, also greets her, but gives her the greeting, calling her a favored one, and a promise that the Lord is with you. And she, similar to Zechariah, is troubled at the saying and is trying to figure out what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel says to her, don't be afraid. You found favor with the Lord. And you're going to give birth to a baby. The promise here isn't the promise of a baby being born to be a prophet, but rather the promise of the baby being a king. Here, the the promise, the prophecy, is that this baby would be the one that the first baby would prepare the way for. He is the one that is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God has given in the Old Testament of a king that would be descended from David who would rule on his throne forever, the Savior who would come and deliver his people and who would then reign over the house of Israel forever, the one one who would be the king who would have a kingdom that would last forever. (coughs) And this visitation comes to just a young woman in a, a small town in the north of Israel, called Nazareth. An average teenage girl with average hopes and plans and dreams. Simple plans to get married, to have a family. The kinds of plans that God interrupts. Put yourself for a moment in in Mary's shoes. Imagine how you imagined your life would go. Imagine if you had the same hopes and dreams that Zechariah and Elizabeth had, when they got married, simple ones, a home, a place of love and contentment, children. You know that God says here that she's highly favored, but he's going to ask her to do something incredibly difficult. He's going to ask her to go through an incredible scandal. Because she is going to have a pregnancy out of wedlock, out of marriage. I'm not sure the kind of culture that you grew up in. But the kind of culture, this conservative culture that these Israelites were growing up in was the kind of culture that had a long memory. And the kind of culture that was very judgmental on those that didn't fit in. It was the kind of culture that did not look kindly on pregnancies outside of marriage and outside of wedlock. Imagine being Mary. Imagine receiving this message from this angel. Imagine how you would feel if you were told that you're going to have a baby before you get married. She responds. um, She responds well to this prophecy. But I'm not sure if she understands all that she's signing up for when she agrees to this. You see, one of the things I think Luke is doing here is making it clear that Jesus' line, that his history is a history that is established by God. That he was born through a virgin birth. This will be described a little later in the passage. But what's happening here is not something that, like Zechariah, that we have a category for. Zechariah had a category for old people giving birth to babies. That happened in the Old Testament. No one had a category for a virgin woman giving birth to a baby without getting married. This was something brand new. Something that ran counter to the norm. And something that would create a scandal. We see from the book of Matthew that that Joseph had the same response that most people would have. He planned to divorce her. He assumed that if she got pregnant during this betrothal period that she had been unfaithful to him, just like any young man would assume. If your uh, fiancé becomes pregnant and you've never slept with her, you're going to have questions. We'll find later in the Gospels that, that this rumor continued on all the way through Jesus' ministry. There were times where people were accusing Jesus of being a bastard child. He was calling himself the Son of God, but they said, yeah, we actually don't know who your father is. Because your birth was a scandal, and we still remember it. But here we have 
Luke setting the record straight. Jesus' birth was a scandal, but it was the right kind of scandal, a scandal from God. It was misunderstood. It was misconstrued. And Mary had to go through public shaming. But even though she went through public shaming, she was a highly favored one of God. What she was doing, what God had called her to do was the right thing, but it was misunderstood. I wonder how how good you are, how good I am at going through public shaming when we do things that are pleasing to God but are misunderstood by our families or our culture. We're we're approaching a day in, in our country, in America, where Christians are begun to be looked at as immoral for the things that we believe, for the things that we declare to be true. We are thought of as immoral by taking our views and projecting them on others, by holding things like the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of life in the womb, by holding on to things like the reality that God is the one who creates marriage, that marriage is only to be between a man and a woman. Sex is a gift from God, but is only to be used inside of marriage. When we say things like this and project our views on others, we will be shamed. I wonder if we're ready to go through the shaming that following God and being one of his favored ones might require of us in this life. This is the the, the two visitations. The promise of a prophet and the promise of a king. Let's turn next to the two responses. The two responses. Look first at Zechariah's response to the prophecy in verse 18. Zechariah hears this prophecy, this promise, that his prayers have been answered and that his wife is going to give birth to a child in her old age. And how does he respond? Does he rejoice? No. What does he do? He asks a question. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And what's Zechariah doing here? Well, The angel tells us what he's doing in verse 20. He says, you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. What is Zechariah's response here by saying, how will I know this? Well, he isn't believing the word of the Lord. He's doubting and questioning the word of the Lord given through the angel. He's being skeptical. Now, it doesn't tell us why he's skeptical, what's on his heart and mind. Maybe he's afraid of hurting his wife's hopes or feelings if he tells her a message that maybe doesn't come true. It doesn't tell us whether it was motivated by good or just simply skeptical. But his response is a response of unbelief. You know, different people are going to hear the same message and respond in one of two different ways. Some will respond to a message like this, a message of miracles, of a miraculous birth, of two miraculous births. The birth of an old woman after she has passed childbearing years. The birth of a child to a virgin who'd never had uh, relations with a man. And look at a miracle like that and say, I do not believe it. I cannot believe that it's true. That could not happen. Here he's asking for proof. It looks like he's asking for a sign. So the angel gives him a sign. But it's the sign in the form of a rebuke and of a discipline. He tells him, because you didn't listen when God spoke, you're not going to be able to speak until this is fulfilled. Now, what's wonderful here is that God does rebuke Zechariah. He makes him mute. And it looks like probably deaf as well, to be silent and then to be mute. Because later you see in the passage they're making signs to him, which looks like he isn't able to hear either. He is then made silent because he didn't listen to God when God spoke. But yet God is still kind to him and still gives him the promised baby and still gives him the joy that comes through the birth of this baby. But yet he reprimands him for not believing, for not having the faith to believe miraculous news. You look at the second response then, the response of Mary. The response of of Mary in verse 34. Mary receives this news And she asks a question too, but her question isn't, how can I know that this is going to happen? Her question is, well, how is this going to take place? How will this be? 
Hers is a practical question of attempting to understand a new concept. Is this going to happen after I get married? Or is it going to happen before I get married? And the angel then answers her her question that comes from faith with the desire to know by answering her question in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then, not only does he answer the question in terms of how it's going to happen through a, a miracle birth by the Holy Spirit and the power of God, he then encourages her faith by pointing her to her cousin, Elizabeth, who's already pregnant, the barren woman who has conceived and is bearing a child as an encouragement for her faith. And then look how Mary responds in verse 37. The angel says, Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. As Luke is laying out for us these two prophecies, the prophecies of these two miracles... And as he lays out for us the two responses, Zechariah's and Mary's, he is laying out for us two paths that we can choose as we hear the wonderfully miraculous account of Jesus as we enter into this gospel, as we begin reading it. We can respond like Zechariah in unbelief or like Mary in humble belief. But those are our only two options. The message here is, a wonderful one, but it is, in a sense, an incredible one. The message of the Gospels, the message of Jesus, is an incredible message. One that will be hard for many to understand, to grasp, and to believe. But we are being called by Luke, but even more so by God, to believe this message, and to respond like Mary, and even to respond like Elizabeth. You see there that Luke makes it extra clear that Mary responded well by having the account of Elizabeth in verse 39. Mary then rushes to the town where Elizabeth is and she enters the house of Zechariah and she greets Elizabeth and then Elizabeth hears the greeting. The baby leaps in her womb and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And look at what she exclaims there in verse 43. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then verse 44. Behold, when the, baby, uh, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my, my womb leaped for joy. And then verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. You see, this is what God is calling for you and for me to respond to this message of Jesus. The miraculous birth, the virgin birth of Jesus. The baby who was born in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecy. We are called to respond like Mary with humble belief and trust in God. Confidence that he is doing what he promised. And hope that he will save us from our sins. And that he will give us new life in him if we would repent of our sins and trust in Christ. See, this is the response that all of us must make to the gospel message. The gospel message is the message that has been proclaimed from the Old Testament all the way to the New. A message of a holy God who created human beings in His image, created us to know Him and to love Him and to be in a relationship where we surrender ourselves to His good and loving rule over us. The gospel message tells us not only that God is good and that He's created us in His image, but it includes the bad news that all of us have sinned, that we have rebelled against God. Rather than trusting His Word and listening to it, we have rejected Him and His Word and all of His good promises, that we have sought to be the kings over our own lives and made a mess of all of it, and that because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment and condemnation. Not just a discipline like Zechariah received, but being cast out of His presence forever. But the Gospel that is beginning here with the good news of two miraculous births, is the message that God has made a way for sinners like you and like me to be made right with God again. To enter back into that garden like Adam and Eve were in in the beginning. A place where we can be with God. To delight in Him and enjoy His presence forever. If we would repent of our sins and trust in God's provision of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning... 
and you're hearing this message, what seems like for the first time, let me encourage you. Push your doubts away. Follow the path that Mary sets and have humble and simple faith in this message. There's encouragement here for young people. Do you notice it's the old man who doubts and it's the young woman who has simple faith? Do you know that even young people can shame older people by having a simple faith in God? Let me encourage you, even if you're here and young, to not think that you're too young to exercise great faith in a good God. God may have good things in store for you, even at a young age. And you can do those things and be a blessing to others. Look, finally, at not only two visitations and two responses, but look, finally, at two songs of praise. Our songs of praise begin with Zechariah's second response. In verse 57, there came to be the time for Elizabeth to give birth. She bears the son that had been promised. The neighbors and relatives are excited and are rejoicing with them. And then that the eighth day comes for the baby to be circumcised. And they're about to call him Zechariah after his father. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And then they inquire of the seemingly deaf and mute father, And he writes on a tablet, his name is John, exercising faith and belief, even after initial unbelief. Zechariah believes, writes down that simple phrase, his name is John, trusting and believing in the word of the Lord. And instantly, his tongue is loosed. And he begins singing a song of praise. Look at what he praises God for. Starting in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. You see, not only do we respond to this message with faith, a simple belief and trust in God, and in His words, incredible, miraculous words, we are also to respond as Mary does, verses 46 to 56, and as Zechariah does in verses 67 to 79, by responding to this message, not just believing His word, but responding with praise and rejoicing in our hearts. You know, this is what we do when we gather on Sundays with God's people. One of the primary things that we do is we give praise to God. We do this in our prayers, and we do this in our songs. God calls us to be those that worship Him and worship Him rightly. The thing that we were called to do when God originally created us and put us in the person of Adam and Eve in the garden We were made to worship Him and to enjoy His presence forever. Do you know you were created by God and called by Him to worship God? God is to be worshipped and praised because He is the greatest being that exists in the universe. The only one worthy of all praise. But the wonderful thing about worship is not only is, is it bringing glory to God, it's giving joy to His people. You see, worship, while it brings God glory, it brings joy to God's people. And we were created to find our joy in worshiping God. When God calls us to respond, not simply in faith, but then in a faith-filled worship of God, we are able to achieve, to experience what we were created for, to worship the only good and wise God, the God who always keeps His word and His promises, and the God who answers prayer. You see, as our passage finishes here, the question that is left for you and for me is how will you respond to this wonderful message? This message of promises fulfilled. All of the promises in the Old Testament fulfilled in this miraculous birth of Jesus and started through the ministry of a prophet, John, who would prepare the way for this Messiah, King Jesus. Will you respond with unbelief? And reject the message? Or will you respond in humble faith? Believe God's word 
trust it and worship him both now and for forever. It is the only of two responses that we have. If you're here this morning, Christian, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you from this passage. God's timing might not be what you expect. He might not do things on your timetable. And He might not answer prayers, every one, the way that you want, or even the way you expect, or even in those moments of darkness, the way that you desire. But let me encourage you, Christian. God has good in mind for you and for all of His people. And He has put together a plan to save a multitude of sinners that would be, as Zechariah says there at the end of his prayer, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people. And verse 74, that being delivered from the hand of our enemies, that we might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. It's God's plan to collect for Himself a people. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation that would be for Him a devoted people. Devoted to Him and to singing His praises and worshiping Him forever. Let me encourage you, Christian. While things in this life might not work the way you expected or at the timing that you hoped for, your God is good. He keeps His promises and He answers prayer. Trust Him and give Him praise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this gospel that you have preserved for us. This record of what happened at the beginning of the salvation that you promised. Thank you that we can have certainty by reading this word from you. That these things are true. That you will keep your promises. And that there is a salvation for sinners like us to be reconciled with you through faith and reconciled to you for worship. We pray that you would allow your spirit to do your work through this, your word, both now and forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.